0: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome to this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, Executive Director of the Citizens Alliance for Responsible Energy and the companion advocacy organization Energy Makes America Great, Inc. And each week I write a column on some current news topic that's Energy themed, always with a free market, limited government perspective. And then here on America's Voice for Energy, I have the opportunity to interview some of the experts whose uh, policies or, or writings have influenced my work. And this week, I'm excited that we have three brand new guests that have never before been with me on America's Voice for Energy. This. Our first guest who's going to be with us for two segments is Merrill Matthews. And Merrill is a PhD. He's a resident scholar with the Institute for Policy and Innovation based in Dallas, Texas. And when I got my idea for this week's column, I want to make sure Merrill knows that it, I had this idea first. I saw I heard about the Ford story, that Ford announced on September 9th that they were going to move all their small car production to Mexico. Donald Trump, of course, immediately came out and called that a horrible decision, and, and he's threatened a 35 percent tariff on Ford if they make cars in Mexico and try to move them back across the border. But as I looked at that story, they kept saying that it's not profitable to make small cars in the United States. And I, it's, I thought, well, if it's not profitable, why do they make them? I mean, you know, in a free market world, uh, if you have a product that makes a lot of money, which in Ford's case are trucks and SUVs, and they can afford to make them with the high union wages in the United States, and then you've got a product that makes little or no money, which would be the small cars, why do you keep making them? Well, to me, the answer is the CAFE standards. So when I sat down on Sunday afternoon to get to work on writing my column, I had all the ideas I wanted to address. But I got on the Internet and I did my research, and lo and behold, I found that Merrill Matthews had the same idea and wrote on it before I did. So, Merrill, welcome to America's Voice for Energy.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, as I said, you know, I was, I was a little bit disgusted with you, but happy at the same time that you <laughs> beat me uh, to the punch because you gave me a good quote that I could use in my column, and now I'm delighted to, to be acquainted with you uh, through our conversation here on America's Voice for Energy. How would you come up with the idea of the Ford thing and the CAFE standards and Trump and all of that?
2: Well, it just seemed obvious. Uh, Companies have been moving, in some cases, offshore um, out of the U.S. uh, for various reasons, and part of it is is because of our tax system, but when you're talking about companies that are involved in auto production – they have got to try to make a profit off some of these cars that they make, and as you mentioned, uh, the the really profitable cars for them are the uh, uh, are the SUVs and trucks that uh, Ford, Chevrolet, and Dodge make uh, Chrysler, Dodge, Plymouth. The uh, but those those uh, those cars. The, the CAFE standards, the corporate average fuel economy standards, uh, are forcing the car manufacturers to try to do something to keep that that sort of government-imposed mandate of, of their average fuel economy up there. In order to do that, they have to make these small cars that many of them, I think, would rather not make, the Chevy, even the electric vehicles, the uh, Chevy Volt, the uh, Nissan Leaf, and so forth. I think there there's some pride in being able to do kind of cutting edge technology on the other hand these aren't big sellers people don't want these things they lose money on these things but by making those cars it allows them when you average out that fuel economy across the fleet it allows them to be able to continue making the cars and the, the large cars trucks and SUVs that actually keep them profitable so it just makes sense for a car manufacturer given those kinds of federal mandates and regulations to do something to stay in business.
1: Yeah, and uh, so that we had we were on the, thinking on the same line there. When you look at uh, what what Mark Fields, the CEO of Ford, said, that we're always going to invest in the places where it makes sense
2: for us, uh, you know, to do business. And- that's right, and there's, there's a couple of reasons. People sometimes bash companies for doing this. All things being equal, my guess is most companies would prefer to keep their, uh, their manufacturing in the United States. It's I agree. It's safer and other things, but things aren't always equal. And if you're selling a lot of product to uh, in another country, and that my understanding is, uh, for instance, GM sells a lot of Buicks in China because the Chinese feel like that's sort of an upper-middle uh, uh, income car for them, uh, and it's it's popular in the U.S., and so if you're, if you're selling a lot of your product in another country, it makes a certain amount of sense to set up a factory in that country and create those products. They're just as we like it when Toyota, Nissan, uh, BMW, and others set up their factories in the U.S. because we are buying their products. But when you have a company like Ford that says we're going to create all our small cars there, you know they're selling them to Mexicans, but they're also going to bring them across, and the reason is because They've got to be able to make, uh, make some kind of profit off these cars.
1: Yeah, and my part of my premise was, of course, they've got lower labor costs in Mexico, and, and we, we're, they're having to compete. Because you might say, well, if they can't make a profit on these cars, why don't they raise the price? Well, they can't raise the price in my perception um, because they're competing with cars from Japan And cars from South Korea, where they have much lower labor costs, and so they can't just raise the price of these small cars, but yet the CAFE standards um, require that they produce these small cars.
2: Right. They have the, uh, they're they competing against other global uh, companies, which may or may not have the same kind of cost imposed as, uh, as the U.S. does because of our labor agreements with the, uh, with the major auto manufacturers. But and, addition, I, and I
1: think regulation plays into that as well.
2: I think regulation Environmental play.
1: regulations. I mean, obviously CAFE is a regulation, but we've got such environmental regulations now that really make almost any kind of business in
2: America cost prohibitive. But but in addition, if you're going to raise the cost of the small cars to where it's actually what they would be paying for, a sized car or for maybe a truck or a, or a small SUV or something, uh, raising the price just means that people don't buy those small cars. They go to the next level and buy something where they get more money for their uh, for their dollar or more, yeah, uh, more, so- uh, more car for their dollar.
1: So as we said, it makes sense for them to be making them in Mexico where the costs are, you know, really about a fourth uh, for labor of what they are in the
2: U.S i think that's right you know it, it, your listeners will know when you go if you go to uh rent a car at an airport or something and they say oh okay you, you you've uh um set aside a small car look for the same price we'll give you an automatic upgrade to a mid-sized car if you want to do that i usually always say absolutely i'll take the mid-sized car over the small car just because it's safer a little heavier easier to handle and so forth so if if you force the co- the cost the price of these small cars up people would just sh- uh, simply shift to the larger cars which is where most of them want to be anyway.
1: right that's a good example the rental car example I want to mention you brought up the safety issue that if you have that in- you rent that mid-sized car it's safer. Certainly the cafe standards um, have impacted uh, the safety of vehicles.
2: That's absolutely right. As as cars have been trying to become lighter so that they could uh, uh, squeeze out a little extra fuel uh, fuel miles, they've been looking for stronger metals that they feel like are going to be uh, as strong as as maybe a big, heavy car, but uh, still be lighter. And I don't... my sense is that the school is still out on whether or not that's working, but the manufacturers are looking for various ways to try to lighten the uh, cars so that they can get that extra additional uh, mileage out of the car so that they don't have to rely so much on small cars and electric cars to offset the fuel economies.
1: Yeah, Marilyn, in our second segment together, I'd like to talk about some of the maybe unintended consequences, but we've got just a few minutes left in this segment, and I don't know that we've really defined what the CAFE standard is. You know it, and I know it, uh, and you and I who have written on it understand it, but maybe not all our listeners do. Can you explain it?
2: Well, in the CAFE standards, the government sets an arbitrary figure of what kind, type of mileage cars and, and light trucks should be able to get. Now, it's not that these are what most cars can get because they're set under uh, various uh, uh, research guidelines so they, they tend to be a little higher. And the government has been pushing those those that mileage levels up and then the President Obama uh here about a year, year and a half ago, I think pushed up if I remember right to about fifty four miles a gallon for 54.5, since I just right wrote first. on it, I
1: happen to know. Fifty four point five miles per gallon by twenty twenty five.
2: And, and the last I saw, was, which was just about a month or so ago, uh, the manufacturers and the administration are essentially conceding they're not going to be able to make that goal. But they keep pushing these goals higher, which force the car manufacturers to try to um, come up with something that will allow them to do it. And, of course, they're under the thumb of the federal government. If they if they push back too much against the federal government, this administration can be very vindictive if you're not playing along with the administration's perceived goals where it wants to go you think <laughs> i'm thinking it's sarcastic in i admit I i'm
1: being sarcastic they'll have big fines if they don't meet that now i don't think it was in your column but in my research that i did for my column this week i believe i read in fact i'm sure i read um that this year is the first year that the average fuel economy is actually um going in the wrong direction uh, that that I don't know I don't know what the current goal is because like I said I know it's 54.5 by 2025 but I don't know where our current requirement is I think it's in the 30s and we're at we we've actually I, it's probably because we've sold so many big trucks with the low gas prices as you said that's what people want. And I believe it. So this year is the first year that the average, the corporate average fuel economy, has actually gone the wrong direction.
2: And remember, it's not just that they have to. The government keeps imposing other things on the cars, like side airbags and other things, which could add a, maybe a small amount of weight, but some weight to the car.
1: Yeah, it's, they're they're definitely in uh, kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. Uh, and it's it's made the cars. Uh, much more expensive for the consumers.
2: Absolutely, much more expensive, and so uh, l- lower income and early, uh, you know, young families and so forth. Those who want really inexpensive transportation tend to gravitate towards the small cars. And my my sense is most of the manufacturers would keep one or two small car products because they'd like to be able to capture people, young young families, yeah. and then and then stay with them for the uh, for the rest of the time. But they would probably do be doing something different if it wasn't for the cafe standards and what the and the, uh, the things they impose on them.
1: Yeah, what a great concept it would be is if, if you who owns the business could make the kind of car, make whatever you want, and you could sell it to people who want it instead of being forced to make a product uh, that you don't want or, or that consumers don't want. And that's kind of the whole idea behind the CAFE standard. We're talking with Merrill Matthews, who is a, a resident scholar with the Institute for Policy Innovation. He's a public policy analyst specializing in health care issues and is the author of numerous studies on public policy issues. And we're going to have more with him in just a moment on America's Voice for Energy. Please stay with us and we'll be right back.
3: Don't be hoodwinked by the
1: left, who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's web radio.
3: Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out, and when necessary, Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer
0: and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, Executive Director of Energy Makes America Great. And we're talking with Merrill Matthews, a resident scholar with the Institute for Policy Innovation. We're talking about the CAFE standards and how how they impact car companies decisions so thanks for joining us once again Meryl. appreciate your time
2: good glad to do it
1: well, you know we talked in the last segment about what is the cafe standard and i and i let our listeners know that we talk about maybe some of those unintended consequences in this segment mm-hmm. and we we ended the last segment talking about how they've increased the cost of vehicles for consumers uh, and which are particularly difficult of course for for uh, young people and young families starting out who maybe are buying, actually, uh, here's an unintended consequence, instead of buying a new fuel-efficient car because the cost is so high, they end up buying a 10-year-old, you know, I don't know, Ford Explorer or something that they can get at a low price, but that is nowhere near as fuel-efficient as what the government wants us to drive. That's one (laughs) of the unintended
2: consequences. It, that's absolutely right, and of course the, uh, the they've got to try to they're having to maximize their own fuel efficiency. Most of us want to be able to use uh, uh, gasoline when we need to make trips, and, uh, and from from the car company standpoint, you have to give them a little bit of sympathy because when oil prices go down, which the uh, the car companies have little or no control over at all, when right. oil prices go down, people want to be able to buy the bigger cars and trucks, uh, and when oil prices go up, they tend to want to. Uh, uh, get rid of those, and then try to go to something more efficient, and so forth. So it creates this constant churn in the business. And, and as a car manufacturer, it's hard to know where people are going to be because if it, we, we may be uh, with a, a, a ga- gallon of gasoline under two dollars a gallon now, but if we, in six months or eight months we find that gasoline is three dollars three fifty a gallon, you're going to find people moving over saying, uh, "Could we look at a Toyota Prius or something like that?" Because it's just going to be more fuel efficient. If there's that. Churn out there, and it's awfully hard for the for uh, the car companies both to manage the consumer demand with its variations, and then the government's demands with its variations. Yeah, I, I have a lot
1: of sympathy for the car companies, and, I, and I, in a part, maybe that's why I wrote this column this week is is to kind of to say to Trump, you know, lighten up on Ford. It's not really Ford's fault that they need to make this decision. You, we could have government policies that are different and government policies that make it more attractive to do business. And I, and I think I, I want to encourage him, because I do have a little slight in there uh, through his energy uh, policy advisor, Representative Kevin Kramer, to say, you know, let, let's let make America a place where it makes sense to invest instead of putting in policies that chase uh, companies like Ford over to Mexico.
2: And you know Marita there's another thing here which I mentioned in the column uh, and that's outside of the government policies which is we have a we have fossil fuel fanatics out there who are bound and determined to bring to an end the fossil fuel industry. so they've been out there their focus over the past few uh, what month or so has been the Dakota access pipeline where they're trying to move uh, uh, oil uh, into uh, refineries and they've tried to stop that down. there was the Keystone XLP Pipeline before that, but at some point it's not. It's. Not, it wouldn't surprise me if some of these uh, uh, protesters don't say, "Let's go protest the car companies because they are one of the primary users of the oil and natural gas that are coming out." Don't give them any ideas.
1: Don't. Don't. Don't give them any ideas
2: and if if, if you 're a manufacturer here, do you want to have those people out there picketing your uh, your place so you might very well say let 's just move let 's move to another country where the population wants us, the government wants us they 're willing to accommodate us and it 's going to be make it 's going to make it very difficult for the various protesters to go and protest us and picket our lines and keep us from uh, doing what we need to do in those places so uh, I think there may be, uh, there, there may be some sense in which there 's a little um, Uh, preparatory action here just in case that they become the targets.
1: Yeah, you may well be right on that because, you know, Mark Field, CEO of Ford, announced that they're putting a huge amount of investment into electric cars and autonomous cars um, because they believe that's where the market is going. Personally, I'm not convinced on either one of those things, um, Mm -hmm. but that brings us uh, to Tesla, because Tesla, you know, explain for our listeners, if you can, why how electric cars fit into this whole CAFE package.
2: Well, the electric cars, of course, have no fuel emissions, so that gives them uh, – Well, really they do have out. fuel
1: emissions, they're just not at the tailpipe.
2: Right, exactly, uh, and so that gives them that plus. But in addition, there is a tax credit out there that's provided for electric cars. Uh, it's called the zero emission vehicle um, uh, uh, credit, and and that credit allows if you have if you're making a car with zero, essentially zero emissions, you get a certain amount of tax credit. You can sell these carbon tax credits to other countries that exceed the amount that the government will uh, allow them to have. So. Tax Tesla, which has really never made any money, but it has done fairly well selling uh, selling selling these uh, emission credits. So uh, last year it made about 150 million dollars selling uh, the ZEV credits. Um, that was up from 130 million in uh, 2013. So it was a uh, it, it it does fairly well by selling these, and that's allowed Tesla, which has a fairly high stock value, considering the fact that it can't make any money. Um, that's yeah. done fairly well because the the car companies are buying those uh, credits yeah i wrote on that a few months back
1: and um from my memory chrysler uh, fiat chrysler was one of the big buyers of those because fiat chrysler didn't have a lot of small cars and so they were buying these credits now of course the cost of those credits gets wrapped into the price of, let's say, the Dodge, uh, the Ram pickup trucks and so forth. Um, So that's another way they're increasing costs for consumers.
2: Right. Consumers are ultimately paying for those credits.
1: Yeah. In fact, I recall, and I didn't research this for this week's column, but I recall back at the merger of Chrysler and Fiat, that one of the things that made that merger attractive is that Chrysler didn't have the small cars in its fleet that it needed to make the cafe st- to meet the cafe standards, and the Fiat vehicles um, had had those little uh, 500s and that that get very good mileage, and so they brought bringing them together helped uh, Chrysler with its cafe obligations.
2: Well, that's absolutely right. So the, uh, the the reason that they did that is because it created a better fleet for Chrysler and for Fiat because they could make more money off the larger cars that uh, Chrysler was making, and Chrysler would have the benefit of, from the cafe standards of Fiat's smaller cars. And then, of course, there's the tax consequences there, which is uh, the reason it's Fiat Chrysler rather than Chrysler Fiat is because of the tax of the of the high uh, corporate tax income tax that we have in the U.S which creates these what we call inversions where large us companies end up merging with a smaller company in another country but they make the smaller country essentially the head company and that puts them under a lower tax base which allows them which allows them to make a little more uh, money off their small cars
1: Again, crazy policies that we've got. You know, and that brings me, I didn't put this in my column, and I don't think you did, because I don't think I read this anywhere. But I question where that $1.6 billion they're investing in Mexico comes from. And my guess is that that money is currently sitting in a bank account in some other country, because Ford sells a lot of cars in Europe. And my guess is, is that money is, is never, it's not coming from a, a bank account in the United States, but that they're going to take profit that they've made in other countries and turn around and invest it in Mexico rather than turning it around in the United States. Do you have any clue?
2: Oh, I suspect that's exactly right. There's about 2.1 trillion dollars of U.S. corporate money sitting offshore in other bank accounts because of our tax system. We have what's called a global tax system. Most countries have what's called a territorial tax system, and what that means is our company, U.S. companies have to pay the taxes of the country where that wherever that factory or whatever it is 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 located, and then they have to come. They bring any money they bring back. They have to pay the difference between what they paid there. And the U.S. tax system, because the U.S. corporate tax rate is the highest in the developed world at thirty-five uh, percent, then they have uh, they have extra mo- they owe extra money. So most of those companies leave that money sitting in foreign bank accounts and will use that then to invest in other places rather than bring it back here because they don't want to incur the extra tax burden.
1: Well, that's truly something I would love for uh, Trump to address um, in in uh, his attacking Ford to, to bring that up and talk about how those that money is probably, I mean, like I said, I have no idea really, but my guess is that that money going into Mexico is currently being held offshore somewhere. We just have a couple minutes left. Meryl, let's talk, if we can, another unintended consequence, uh, which is the aluminum truck bodies Ford is producing. That's as a mm-hmm. result of the CAFE standard as well.
2: Uh, it absolutely is because they're trying to make the trucks lighter to uh, increase that mileage, so that they can and and they consider that I think a selling point the the greater mileage that a, a truck can get that can be a little bit more attractive. But it also allows them to meet those uh, cafe rules. So uh, yeah, that's something. But whether or not that is uh, works well, and I think I think there's actually a commercial out there now where they're dropping a uh, toolbox yes. on the <laughs> on the bed, showing uh, it make it's making an indent. Which it wouldn't do if it had the steel. Um, uh, uh, yeah, it's uh,
1: Chevrolet's advertising that their trucks are still steel and they dropped that toolbox and it, and it barely dents the steel, but it actually makes a hole in the aluminum. Now, see, Chevrolet's got the bolt. So that gives them a, a mileage credit. They, they value that voltage, I believe, at about 90, 90 MPG. And so maybe that's why they can um, still have their trucks made of steel, but that steel or that aluminum truck body for Ford has also made repair costs. I wrote about that at the time that that announcement came out. That's made the repair costs. Uh, dramatically higher. Body shops have had to buy really expensive equipment to be able to fix those trucks. So my guess is that only a few body shops around a region will be able to even work on those cars. We've got about a minute left, Merrill.
2: And the irony here is it doesn't make any difference how many uh, volts Chevy sells. It's just the fact that they have it that is that allows them to offset some of those standards. So you don't have to actually do much with it. You just have to have the car in your fleet.
1: Yeah, it's amazing, and those—I'm sure you followed as I have—the resale value of those electric cars once their leases are up, um, nobody wants them.
2: Right. That—that's absolutely right. They tank, which is one reason why I—I would—I wouldn't touch one of them.
1: Yeah, and you know it's funny you say you wouldn't touch one. I actually thought, well, maybe I should buy one. They're so cheap, and I don't go very—I only drive a couple miles from my home in any given day, so. Maybe I should buy one. I thought I didn't, but, you know, it, it was it was an interesting thought. We've been talking with Merrill Matthews, the resident scholar for the Institute for Policy Innovation, and you can see he's a really smart guy, Ph.D. Dr. Matthews, thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. I'm sure we'll have you back. Thank you. Stay tuned, and we'll be back with our next segment in just a
4: moment. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare but for many the government mandate caused more problems than it solved this is dr elena george from medicine on call and i want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under obamacare liberty healthshare liberty healthshare bypasses doctor and hospital panels giving you the freedom to choose and with a maximum of five hundred dollars out of pocket per person and a hundred percent coverage up to one million dollars per year per occurrence you can rest assured
1: We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org.
3: on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com,
0: the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, and this week we're talking about Ford's move to Mexico and specifically the CAFE standards possible impact on their decision. But in this segment we're going to talk a little more specifically about Ford's move. And one of the comments that I found, or one of the columns that I found that was helpful for me as I wrote my column this week was written by Nick Bunkley. And he is a staff reporter with Automotive News. And he wrote a column last week called, Trump Spins Horrible News That Won't Go Away. At Ford. So, Nick, thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy.
5: Sure, glad to be here.
1: Thanks. So tell us, you, you're at, what's your angle on this story?
5: Well, basically, this is uh, news that, that first came out uh, over a year ago um, as uh, Ford was starting to, to have its uh, contract talks with the United Auto Workers. And uh, as part of that, uh, they revealed that they were going to be uh, moving um, – Production of of the Ford Focus and C-Max, uh, these two small cars that they currently make in Michigan, that they were going to be moving those uh, to Mexico to build those uh, instead, starting in 2018, and uh, it's it's been this, this uh, issue that keeps resurfacing uh, every. Couple of months, uh, and Ford keeps uh, getting new rounds of, of criticism uh, about it, uh, just being part of a, a presidential campaign, and and just the the natural uh, tendency that anytime you're moving production to another country like that, uh, it, it tends to get people uh, a little upset.
1: Yeah, they certainly made themselves a target, especially announcing this in an election season when we've got both candidates decrying companies that move jobs. Uh, off
5: uh, oh, out of America uh, yeah mean it uh, the, the timing here was uh, was was not uh, great uh, as I said that it did first come out uh, over a year ago and it's it's been you know pretty much you know it's no secret or anything since uh, the, the summer of, of 2015 that that was their plan I and mean, they they just haven't uh, hadn't actually confirmed fully that that was what they were doing until uh just uh, this month um but their their plan is basically that uh this this plant that uh, builds cars uh, outside of Detroit right now uh it used to be on three shifts running around the clock when uh demand for these uh, smaller cars was was higher it's been cut to two shifts I had heard that uh you know they might need to uh to go back to just a one shift uh, at some point um, and that's maybe still a possibility um, but basically they're just not selling enough of them here um, and so they want to replace that with um, a pickup truck a smaller pickup truck and a uh, an SUV that would be based on that and they'll they build that at the same plant and with the same workers and and basically have uh, you know no net uh, decrease in, in jobs here in the US but they will be creating about 2800 jobs uh, in Mexico uh, to build those cars at a new uh, plant that they're uh, building there.
1: Yeah, so one one side of the argument would be, well, while they aren't taking jobs, we aren't losing jobs in the United States, they aren't creating new jobs in the United States. Uh, they're creating new jobs in Mexico instead of here.
5: Yeah, and that's certainly uh, a valid argument that uh, they have sort of glossed over in part of this is... is you know, yeah, there's not a decrease in jobs uh, in the U.S., but they are increasing jobs uh, in Mexico, and and their argument uh, is that, you know, these cars just aren't uh, profitable enough uh, to be made in in the U.S. and don't have enough demand uh, to be made in the U.S., and that was the way things were going uh, years back. Then uh, the United Auto Workers uh, agreed to uh, the two-tier wages that it gave new workers uh, lower wages, and so the all three of the Detroit auto companies started bringing these small cars back into the U.S. and and that happened, uh, you know, at uh, around the time of the recession when when SUVs were just plunging and and the small cars were what people wanted because gas prices were high, and so all three. Uh, Chrysler, uh, Ford, and GM were all building small cars here in the U.S., and then it's kind of reversed itself again because the market has changed and the UAW no longer wanted to go along with the, that uh, two-tier wages uh, because they they wanted to get back to the the higher wage. Oh,
1: really? I didn't realize that part of the negotiations.
5: They they basically uh, it, I mean it wasn't uh, like a one-for-one trade-off, but it it was the effect was. You know, the UAW went into these these this latest round of talks last year, and rather than making the the companies commit to as many products as they had in the past in in the U.S., they were more focused on wages, and so the result was the companies basically said, you know, well, we'll just we'll have to build these elsewhere then, uh, these smaller, less profitable cars elsewhere, and so you have both Ford and uh, Chrysler that are uh, going to be no longer producing any small cars uh, in the u.s uh, within the next couple of years
1: but gm is going to continue to make small cars in the u.s up at least as far as we know
5: yeah and they've said that they're still uh planning to do that uh, indefinitely the what's a little bit different for them is they just have a little bit more capacity in the u.s to to do that they have a plant in ohio and, and a plant in michigan that are building those vehicles uh and they don't really have anything else that that could come in and replace those right now. Um, but for the time being, they are still still producing them there. Um, however much money they're actually making from those uh, is, is you know, unclear, but uh, yeah, they just haven't made the same uh, moves that Ford and, and Chrysler have. Yeah.
1: You know, this is a little bit off topic, but I'm not clear. Um, the C-Max cars, that's not what they're branded as, is it? I mean, I've never heard of a car called C-Max until I did the research for the, my column this week.
5: Uh, yeah, they, they, it's what they've been sold as uh, for, uh, it, it's been around for f- three or four years. Um, there was a, an issue with those uh, back in 2013 where they had to admit that the uh, mileage rating on it was overstated, and, and so they reduced that, uh, so it wasn't quite as compelling of a vehicle. It hasn't really sold uh, very well. So, again, that was that car was having some demand issues going into the so the, ba- the latest,
1: badge yeah. on it is C-Max?
5: Yes, it's yeah, it's the Ford C-Max. It's okay. available as either a uh a plug-in or uh, just a hybrid. There's there's no just um gasoline version of that.
1: Okay, but so it is a hybrid. Yes. Okay, I didn't realize that. So I just was was curious. I I didn't, I don't think I've ever heard of that car uh
5: before. It's, it's one of their slowest selling cars. They only sell uh, a little bit over a thousand <laughs> <in> a month. <laughs>
1: okay yeah well you might wonder as i as i question my column then why on earth are they making these cars why do they make cars that that apparently nobody wants
5: well it, i guess nobody is is uh, relative because uh, you know the focus they, they still sell uh you know a couple hundred thousand of those uh, a year and it's just not as popular as it used to be um but you know, compact cars uh, in general are are on the decline. Um, yeah, you know, so they still they still sell a good number of them, but um, people are just looking more at the crossovers and SUVs, and and those are more popular. Outside of the U.S., compact cars like the Focus though are still uh, very popular, especially in places like Europe, where gas. Yeah, no, of course, are, they're
1: roads. Their roads are not uh, equipped for big vehicles. They, especially in the older cities, they can't have big cars.
5: Yeah, it's just very different markets than than from the U.S. And and so that's another reason why that Ford wants to build the Focus in Mexico is because you know those those cars are not as popular in the U.S. But it's more expensive for Ford to export it from the U.S. than to export it from Mexico. Mexico has a lot of trade deals uh, with other countries that the U.S. Uh, doesn't. That that. You know, it's cheaper for auto companies to export from Mexico, and that's why you've had a lot of the activity building plants in Mexico lately because those companies want to export to other markets and they can build it in in Mexico. There's cheaper labor there and it's cheaper to export. Uh, and so it doesn't really matter as much then what the demand is in the U.S. because if Ford doesn't need as many focuses in the U.S., then they send them to other countries.
1: Yeah, and my research, I, do, I, I learned that, Uh, Mexico has, according to my research, quietly been setting up independent trade uh, deals with, I believe it was 44 different countries, and that's part of what makes uh, building cars in Mexico really attractive for many car companies. I mean, there's a lot of of car companies, not just Ford, that are are building cars in Mexico. Now, I, I believe I read that there's a 40% 40% increase in employment in car manufacturing in Mexico since 2008 and only a 15% employment in car manufacturing since that same time in the U.S.
5: Yeah, there's a lot of activity in Mexico these days. Uh, Ford is building its new plant. Uh, Volkswagen is building an, an Audi plant. Uh, Nissan, Honda have all been uh, adding capacity in, in Mexico. Um it's again it's driven by both the cheaper labor and also the ability to to export those vehicles elsewhere so you're not just dependent on the us uh, consumers wanting to buy those those small vehicles that that right now people are not as uh, interested in
1: yeah one of the themes of my column was based on a comment that mark fields made and he said we're always going to invest where it makes sense for business. And that was kind of one of the themes I addressed, that obviously Mexico has been working, not just with their labor, but with those trade deals and things. They have been working to make Mexico a place where it makes sense to invest. And unfortunately, um, the United States has done the opposite.
5: That's true in, uh, in terms of Mexico's uh, uh, working to, to make it attractive to, to the auto companies uh, you know US employment has increased uh, in, in the last few years and uh, uh, Ford has basically gotten back to the the level that they were before the uh, the, the recession there in terms of uh, union employment uh, here in the U.S., hourly employment. And so they've added back, uh, you know, 25-plus uh, thousand jobs uh, here in the U.S. A lot of those were those originally the, the lower paid, you know, starting at $14, $15 an hour, that are now on the progression to, to getting back up to $28, $29 an hour, and thanks to this latest contract from, from last year. Uh, but, uh, you know, Ford is deciding to use its capacity – in the U.S. to, to build the, the SUVs and pickup trucks that it can't make enough of. And the small cars like the Focus that, uh, that the sales have been on the decline, they, they're just shipping those else elsewhere so that they can uh, you know, make those at a lower cost.
1: Yeah, and as you point out in the closing of your column, your closing line, is Ford has complained about constantly being picked on by Trump, yet it keeps bringing the Mexico story back to life. If Ford continues to get pummeled on the campaign trail over the next 55 days, it only has itself to blame. Uh, We've been talking with Nick Bunkley. Uh, He's a reporter with Automotive News, and uh, specifically we've been talking about a piece he wrote on September 14th titled, Trump Spins Horrible News That Won't Go Away at Ford. We've got about 30 seconds left, Nick. Anything else you want to add to this topic?
5: Well, I, if, you know, Ford, uh, they unfortunately have uh, sort of been unable to kind of get out of their own way on this issue. They, they just haven't really done a great job of explaining it. And there's, as I said, there's you know, some valid arguments to be made on whether they should be moving production to Mexico or, or what could be done to, uh, to make that more attractive to build it here. Uh, but they are going to be building uh, some new products, uh, uh, trucks and SUVs, in that plant in the U.S., they're not going to be reducing any jobs as a result of it, um, but they are adding jobs in Mexico, and, and that's uh, just the, uh, the reality of their uh, manufacturing setup these days.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, Nick, I appreciate you sharing your insights with us. It's an interesting story, and I think the, the combination of the experts that we've got on the show today will really uh, – add to those who are interested in it, help them understand it. Thanks for joining us on America's Voice for Energy. We'll be right back for our final segment.
3: Your auto love and investment demands the best. And for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport.
4: Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, Visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today.
0: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome to our final segment of this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, and this week we've been talking about the CAFE standards, the corporate average fuel economy standards set by the federal government that I believe are impacting Ford's decision to go to Mexico. And one of the folks whose work inspired me, helped me with this week's column, is someone I just met literally moments ago by phone, And uh, but I'm delighted to make the acquaintance with Michael Lynch. He's a contributor to Forbes, and he has, he spent nearly 30 years at MIT as a student and then a researcher at the Energy Laboratory and Center for International Studies. He wrote a piece back in June, July that's titled Cafe Standards, the Next Big Political Battle Over Energy. Of course, as, you, as you've listened to the previous segments of this show, you can imagine why that title caught my attention. So, Mike, thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy.
0: Oh, I'm very happy to be here.
1: I think we've put together a really great show discussing this topic of CAFE standards, and you are, of course, going to beautifully wrap it up. But it's something that most people, you know, really aren't even aware of. One of the websites that posts my column, uh, oilpro.com, Someone responded, interesting discussion, I wasn't aware of the CAFE standards, and this is someone who's, you know, in the oil industry professionally, presumably based on the audience of that particular website. It's something most people really don't focus on. Do you find that to be the case?
0: Uh, Yeah, very much so. Uh, It really kind of sailed through Congress and the administration a few years ago when they did the update, and it doesn't really uh, have an impact on people's lives or pocketbooks right now, Uh, so I, I think it's just been off the radar for almost everyone.
1: Well, I would sort of disagree with you that it doesn't have an impact on their pocketbooks, but they don't know it has an impact on their pocketbooks. I would certainly agree with, because the CAFE standards have really uh, driven um, the, the car production in America.
0: Um, it, it, they've driven what the companies are, are trying to do and forced them to uh, try to make cars that are different from what the consumers want, which is not helpful. Uh, yeah, that's some, the key
1: thing right there, in my opinion. They're, it's forcing the car companies to make cars that consumers don't want.
0: Right, or pay penalties. The penalties to date have not been that large, but that could, that could change very much in the next few years.
1: So your title, the next big political battle over energy. Explain that. What you mean by that?
0: Well, I think that what's going to happen, uh, and it may not be the absolutely the next but i think what's going to happen is uh, sometime in the next year or two we're going to see the auto companies and the auto unions going to the politicians saying we're going to be paying a high price for the for the cafe standards uh you have to do something you have to relax them and and you're going to have sort of the environmental community saying no we absolutely have to keep these in place for because of climate change uh but with, with the auto workers on the side of uh, relaxing them, I think that's going to make it a much more difficult fight.
1: Yeah, the auto manufacturers have fought the CAFE standards, you know, really all along, but especially this increase that President Obama put through a 54.5 MPG by 2025. They've, the auto manufacturers have fought that, and, of course, it comes up for review uh, in the middle of next year. Uh, so we, we, it comes up in the middle of a first presidential, or first year of a new president, whoever that might be. Do you see that this election uh, will, will make a difference in how the, that midterm review might play out?
0: Well, I do very much, because if Donald Trump is elected, I, I think almost certainly he'll want to do away with the uh, regulation, if, if not relax it quite a bit, because he's generally uh, spoken out against regulation as, as a, a, a problem for the economy and the public. Uh, Hillary Clinton is is less certain uh sir at this point uh during the election she's still uh trying to show all of her green credentials uh to right. the voters um but it's possible that she will become more pragmatic once she's in office especially uh if it looks like you're going to lose a lot of auto worker jobs
1: yeah and that the auto worker jobs are certainly a key constituency for the democrats so i i, I wouldn't venture that there's a high likelihood that they're gonna vote Republican this year
0: uh, that could be, but you know, after the election, uh, they'll still carry a lot of sway uh, over the Democratic politicians. Um, you know, Bear in mind that uh, one of the reasons we've burned as much coal as we have over the last several decades is because uh, some of the liberal Democrats, like Howard Metzenbaum, when they wrote the Clean Air Act, uh, grandfathered a lot of the old coal-fired plants because they didn't want to see the coal jobs lost.
1: Yeah, certainly not while they were still at office anyway. <laughs> yes. So, you know, where, what do you see as the issue, pro or con, uh, with with the CAFE standards? In your article, you say the funny thing is that many economists believe that the early CAFE standards were unnecessary, that higher oil prices caused a shift in consumer preference to more efficient vehicles so that the mileage improvements would have happened even without the regulations that sentence alone there kind of says you know uh, consumer consumer preference should be driving these policies
0: well, you would like to think so, and it's especially what people don't always understand is that uh consumers are very rational; they know what they're doing uh you have all kinds of explanations and rationalizations for why consumers won't buy expensive low quality compact fluorescent lights for example <laughs> um, yep. you I'm know one of and the- yeah uh and uh, but it's uh they generally react to price signals uh which unfortunately a lot of environmental policy ignores um and so yeah, the result out. is that yeah and and we saw that recently we had a shift towards smaller cars when gasoline was four dollars, and now that it's down close to two people are saying okay I, I i don't need to worry about that, and they're buying the bigger vehicles um I don't know how you uh, fix that unless you start to put big uh, taxes on the larger vehicles, something like that. So, you know, <laughs> you you can't go around and knock on the doors and say, you know, you really don't need an SUV. Let me show you a video explaining that to you. <laughs>
1: But in essence, that's really what, what these government policies are really trying to do. In fact, I was on a radio interview yesterday with a station in Michigan, and the gentleman that the host of the show, was uh, he was all over autonomous vehicles and believes that they're part of the government kind of trying to control when and where we, we ultimately drive.
0: Hmm. I'm not sure I'd go that far, but uh, yeah, uh, I,
1: I wouldn't either. But that was his kind of angle. He was all <laughs> he was all. Yesterday there was a big new article in the news about uh, the the government setting autonomous vehicle standards or something like mm-hmm. that, and so that was right. his his talking point of the day. But it, w- it was kind of an interesting angle. But there's definitely throughout regulations and cafe is just one of them. But there's definitely kind of a, a push through the government to steer consumers where they want them to go
0: yeah and it's uh it's unfortunate i mean the, the the classic case uh you may not be old enough but in the old soviet days uh you know you found you would go to a department store and they would have one type of pencil with no eraser on it because they had decided, some, some bureaucrat had decided that's, that's all you needed in terms of pencils. Uh, you know, you go, you go to a local office supply store here and there's a long row of all kinds of pencils and pens. Um, it's, it, yes, and we it's, as
1: Americans like our choices
0: yeah no kidding well the <laughs> russians did too uh, ultimately although they haven't got quite the amount of choice political choice but uh yeah it it's there's a long uh history of uh sort of anti-consumer sentiment which is is partly religious now you see it also uh, kind of in the environmental community um i, I I talk. I actually have a book out recently, and I, I have a chapter on this, uh, and talk about uh, Simeon the Stylite, who, you know, wanted to be as religious as he possibly could. So he stood up on a pillar. I guess this was around 1200 AD. He would stand on a pillar to be further away from the earth, and and so he could be more spiritual. And there are people who talk like that, um, but you know, I I think people like stuff, uh, as George Carlin put it. Um, it's good stuff. Um, and and to try to say, no, no, it's bad. You should be, you know, sitting and meditating or, you know, studying uh, Sanskrit or learning to play the piano. Yeah, that sounds great if if you don't have to actually do it.
1: Well, tell us about your book. It's not in your little bio that I have here in front of me from, from Forbes, so tell us about that.
0: Ooh. I'm sorry. Okay, it just came out at the end of July. It's called the Peak Oil Scare and the Coming Oil Flood, uh, and and the main thing I talk about is how people keep misunderstanding oil, especially but also energy, and uh, going back to uh, Carter in the '70s saying we're running out of natural gas, we should burn more coal. Uh, people have forgotten that part of his policy, um, but also a lot of a lot of people in the industry sort of fell into the trap of "Oh my God, the oil price has to be a hundred dollars a barrel," which is it's just yeah. not true. Yeah.
1: So give me the name of the book again. I'm so glad I brought this okay. up because now that you tell me this, I'm confident you and I will be fast friends, and and uh, <laughs> you'll be a, you'll be a guest on America's Voice for Energy more frequently.
0: Okay, it's the Peak Oil Scare. And the coming oil flood. Great, and, and, I, and is and that I, available
1: through Amazon?
0: Yes, it's from Great. Prager. It's on it's on Amazon. Um, I'm not threatening J.K. Rowling uh, for sales numbers, <laughs> but uh, it's it really goes through in careful detail how exactly people came to believe in peak oil, um, and you know, sort of it's just bad math. Um, but nobody nobody looked at it carefully enough to say, "Hey, this math is wrong," or "You're making a bunch of assumptions that that are just you know incorrect. They're untrue." Um, and it, you see that a lot in policy making, unfortunately, uh, not just in oil.
1: Well, we see it currently. I mean, the cafe standards are part of that. Really, the part of what they where they stem from, I believe, is is that fear that we're going to run out of oil, therefore we need to do everything we possibly can to conserve it. Some of it's based on climate change as well, but I think the early intent of CAFE standards had more to do with that, that uh, peak oil fear. And we've just got yes. about 45 seconds left.
0: Yeah, and, and if you go back to uh, 1980, pretty, the price had just tripled for the second time in five years, and yet almost everybody was convinced they would keep going up. Uh, because we were running out, not because of the Iranian Revolution. So it's it's a sad case, I'm afraid.
1: Yeah, interesting topic. We're going to have to talk it talk about it again. We're out of time. We've been talking with Michael Lynch. I encourage you to look up in Forbes his his column, Cafe Standards. The next big political battle over energy. Great show this week on America's Voice for Energy. Thanks for joining us, Mike, and for our listeners. Please tune in again next week for another edition of America's Voice for Energy, heard each week here on AmericasWebRadio.com. Thanks for listening.
4: This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.